Garth Callahan, the Napkin Knits Dad. Today we talk with Kimberly C. Paul. She's a writer, a podcaster, and has a passion for end-of-life education. Today we learn about the voice and creator behind Death by Design. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I really have to say that this is sort of weird for me, Um, like a role reversal. Usually I'm sitting in your chair and um, done my homework, and this is sort of weird. Almost a year ago, I'm sitting at my desk, VP of Communications and Outreach at my hospice that I work with, and I'm really debating this life-altering decision if I should continue with my career at hospice or do I leave. And I'm sitting there, and I get like a social media something from you. I think it just popped up, and I was actually... I think 10 minutes before saying, I need a sign. And I was like, God, please just show me a sign. And the napkin note, paraphrasing it was, you know, so many people don't change or they're paralyzed by their own fear that they worry that what they're giving up instead of what they're going to gain. And it just clicked. And I went to our new CEO, CEO for me. Um, and I said, I think it's time for me to leave and jump off a 17-year career and do something really radical like cash in my retirement and write a book and be a podcaster. So I owe you for the courage and the wisdom behind that napkin note that you gave Emma that really affected me in the most deepest way and changed my life. So, you know, what's really interesting is that I've, I've taken a handful of napkin notes that are handwritten, right? So I, I grab a napkin, I grab a pen, and I handwrite these notes. I have taken a handful and literally less than two dozen, and I've made these kind of homemade cards out of them, oh, which I wow. hand out every once in a while to somebody. And um, that one is in the in the twenty. What? So, it, and it, and what it is, it says one reason people resist change is because they focus on what they have to give up instead of what they have to gain. It's it's interesting. I I was really intrigued when I started to to learn a little bit more about you through this this fantastic document that you sent to me, and and because my exposure to you has been solely this podcast, and I had no idea you had such. A, a wide and and apparently much more interesting past than what I've ever been able to live. So I, I'd like to hear about this. You know, so Saturday Night Live, CBS Daytime, um, so national television, hmm. and hospice. Yeah, um, these things don't generally associate well with each other. And how did that happen? Well, to tell you frankly. I had $100 in my pocket. Um, Well, I guess even before that, um, I never wanted to go to college. I begged, I begged my parents to allow me to go to New York City and just throw my hat in the ring of something creative. And I had no idea what that was like. And of course, fortunately, I failed at convincing them to run off to New York City and, you know, study Broadway or, you know, nail some nails and some sets. Uh, And I went to Meredith College and graduated. And I felt upon my graduation that I was free, that it was now my time. Um, I had been even a home missionary and um, really strong in my faith. And I wanted to study religion. And that never really evolved but I got into social work because I thought it was social and not listening to people's problems. But I was a very young and naive, uh, you know, 20-year-old who I thought could change the world by changing my perspective. Um, that small, simple acts. I've always studied religion. I've always studied 
Taoism and Buddhism and how love can change the world. And so when I got through all of my studies at Meredith and graduated, I felt like I had given my parents what they wanted and I got a four-year degree and with $100 in my pocket and my Honda Accord, I went to New York City. Now I'm fortunate because I had family there. And I had uh, a cousin, two cousins that are really important in my life, but cousin Mel Odom, who is a really well-known artist in Upper West Side. And I had my cousin Teresa, who's my best friend still today. And she goes, come live with us in Brooklyn and let's see if we can make this dream of yours come true. I, I had no idea that that anything would ever come about. I mean, I had so many doors shut in my face, but you're going to have to reference this and really probably you might want to slap me because within 30 days I was on the set of SNL and people are like, Oh my God. And, and it was, Oh my God, it really was. But if you have ever had a piece of gum stuck on the bottom of your shoe. Well, that's what my job was at SNL. I was a peon. I ran and got sandwiches. I was an apprentice. I, I was the lowest of the low. Um, but here I am the first night and I hear that music at 1130 going live television with Adam Sandler and Mike Myers like steps away from me. The band, it, it, I thought I was living someone else's life. Absolutely. But, um, you know, after so long, I, I was like, well, you know, this whole apprentice thing needs to, uh, I need to be, start making a lot more money than I'm, I'm, I'm doing. So CBS uh, Daytime, Allison Renzel over there, she was the director of East Coast uh, daytime soaps and Gloria Monty, who was the executive producer of General Hospital as I grew up with the Luke and Laura stories. And she's, I remember writing her a letter when I was like eight and she wrote me back. And so it's daytime has already always have been a part of my life. And I believe when I left New York, because the industry was so deflating um, I saw actors um, who have made it and ended up doing drugs. And um, I've seen, I saw a lot of creative aspects, but the business was so personally tough on me because it was cutthroat. And I, after about a year with CBS, decided to, mm -mm, I can't do this. And I packed my things and within two weeks I was back in, in Raleigh and I left that behind. I never wanted to see that. I never wanted to be a part of the business again. Never. Absolutely never. But I, I learned so much about film, about live television, but mostly about stories. I mean, whether it was how people did and prepped, prep for live television and created a, a funny scene and you know, some things that Chris Farley did with me to see if he could make me laugh. And, um, and then, you know, the daytime is how do you keep a story evolving every day new? And how, how do you build relationships over years? And I, I'm still watch Young and the Restless. <laughs> I was a part of some of the people who are still on there casting, you know, 20 some years later. And it was just, it's, it's, I don't, it's just weird looking back on that life to 20 some years ago and, and realizing that I was there, but I was, and it, it was interesting. And I'm not really sure how I got to hospice. Um, it, it sort of found me. Well, so how, as a patient, uh, obviously we, we have thought about, Hey, what do things look like if I don't progress well? And, uh, and, and there are a couple of things that I still don't like to think about and they're, they're off in the future. And, and I really, I don't go there yet. Um, I, I don't bring my mind there. Uh, so tell me, tell me a little bit about your own experience in, in that industry as well as how, you know, how did it impact you and how did it impact the people that 
you served? You know, I started off as the volunteer program manager and I made my way down from Raleigh to Wilmington because I still had this innate um, bug, this this something inside of me, I mean, just needed to be a part of a town that was doing filming, telling a story. And Dawson's Creek was being filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I got to know a few people on the set and I just needed to be around the lights. And as I was driving down, you know, Front Street in Wilmington, I could see, um, you know, Katie Holmes or, you know, all of these individuals who were in a pretty you know, well teen sort of show. And that was enough for me. But I applied to hospice because I needed a job. And I thought that I wanted to do something worthwhile. And I didn't know that this was going to be a 17 year exit um, from sort of really what I wanted to do was to tell my own stories. And a lot of people ask me um, about Saturday Night Live and CBS, but I say the most, the most rewarding work of my life was at hospice. So I started off as the, bro- the volunteer program manager and within a couple of years ended up becoming the vice president of uh, communications and outreach. And that really allowed me to um, get in touch with my creative side. And I found myself, just like with Saturday Night Live and CBS Daytime, I found myself now face-to-face with real stories and real people. And and we weren't just performing on a stage or on a soundstage and creating stories. We, we I was looking at people in the face. And the reason I got to know some of the individuals, I thought to myself as the marketing director, you know, we talk about ourselves so much. How do we do third party? How do we get individuals to really share what hospice is? And so I started interviewing patients and families. And that's sort of what now my book is about is the less the life lessons that I've learned to help me design uh, a design death. Um, the and and life. Um, you know, just some of the lessons like trust your gut or um, always remember perspective or uh, unconditional love. I mean, these are things that on my deathbed that I hope I have done well and I have learned the lessons from these individuals and I have implemented them into my life. And the one thing is being present right here, right now. And, and that's what dying individuals or individuals with a very serious illness has taught me that no one is guaranteed tomorrow, not even me. And I don't have cancer and, and I don't have a serious illness, but I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, I could die before anybody on hospice care does. Um, so that's sort of how I, how I've learned to be awake in life is at the bedside of the dying. As I'm hearing you explain this, I I think one of the realizations and, and one of the turning points for me was I could I could in fact get sideswiped on my way out of the parking lot this evening, and my death certificate would not read cancer. Right, and uh, I, th- there's just there's something about having that realization that your whatever's actually going to be on your death certificate hasn't been written yet and it could happen today it could happen really uh when whenever you actually would consider your real end of life to be maybe you're 60 or 70 or 80 or whatever that happens to be and that that phrase oh that person was too young to die that goes for all of us at any time and i really appreciate the the gravity that you had to carry working in hospice. Mm. Well, I, a lot of people, you know, call hospice, people who work in hospice angels, but I, I think that that's misleading. And, and I think any hospice nurse out there or any social worker working with hospice, man. And I, I think Carrie Egan told me this, like we, I got more than I gave. I received 
And even though I was meeting these people at a very vulnerable time, they taught me so much and within a moment changed my life. And I just wish they knew. And I didn't know it at the moment. It, it, was, it was extraordinary stories that I was privy to. And it was life. And that's the one thing that I think death gets a really bad rap. It really does. Because a lot of people say, well, people who are dying, they're not living. Well, I will say this. People who are seriously ill are living. They are living. Let's talk about something a little less heavy. Okay. Um, I, all I can think of right now is is powerful force in my life. Um, I, Apple is a guy that I dated when I came back from New York, and he was very ambitious, and he was working with the Garner Police Department, and he wanted to be an FBI agent, and he did it. And we dated. Um, so one weekend, um, he came back from Conoco and, and he was just like, you know, you've got the screenplay you're working on. And, um, you know, I've got this, it's really intense at Quantico to finish this FBI Academy. And let's, let's do this, you know, and let's let me have room. I don't think I can do both. You, the relationship at BI, you're, you know, look like you're heading to Los Angeles. You know, you got some interest in the screenplay. And, and I thought nothing of it. I was like, of course, absolutely. You know, it, it's, it wasn't a pause. It was like, I get it. And we had this really magical weekend. And I, I think he, he was. He was the first love that I had ever had. And it, it was as long as he was in the room um, about life. And I thought we were on a temporary hiatus. And um, I never heard from him again. And slowly, I it was sinking in that, oh my gosh, this was not a pause. This was a break up. And I was in Garner at the time, and I needed everything in Garner just reminded me of him. I mean, it was just a really rare moment in his life and in mine because we we would have never have met. Um, it was really weird how we met and that we did meet and that we did click. And, and um, so I packed everything because I couldn't stay in Garner, and I went to Wilmington. And I guess it was like, gosh, four years, four or five years later, um, one of, I was working at hospice and I was now the VP and I was at this, um, if you've ever been to Wrightsville Beach, uh, Oceanic is right on the water. It's so beautiful and romantic. And, and one of my coworkers was getting married. I think I was like 33 or 34 and she asked me to be in the wedding and I'm like, oh, another dress. I'm 34. Oh my God, please. No, I don't want to do this. I don't want to buy a dress that I'm never going to wear again. But I said, yes. And I did not want to do it. Um, but you do things for, for people. And I was running late for the rehearsal dinner because I didn't want to be there. And I picked a random table and I didn't know anyone. Um, and I was sitting at this table at the rehearsal dinner and someone it, I was asleep and at the table, not literally, but just uh, thinking about everything and anything to get me out of this, you know, rehearsal dinner motif. This, um, and someone said, Garner, please. And I kind of woke up and was like, oh. And she goes, yeah, my husband worked for Garner Police. And I was like, oh, I knew someone who worked with Garner Police Department. She goes, oh, who? I was like, Apple. And she goes, oh, man, that's a sad story. I was like, oh, my gosh. He was killed in the line of duty. And she begins to tell me that, yeah, he he left this girl and graduated from the FBI. And 18 months later, he died of cancer. And I all I could do was grab her arm and say, you're talking to the girl. And she went white absolutely white. And I went in complete shock. 
complete shock. And I'm sitting, working at hospice. She's telling me this. I never really met Rob's parents. I think we talked on the phone a couple of times, but they, they lived in Indiana. We were in, you know, North Carolina. And, you know, it was still back fairly back in the day. I mean, when you weren't married, you went to your own parents' house and for Christmas and holidays. So there was never really an opportunity for me to meet his parents. But I was standing up at that wedding the next day, still in shock and knew what I had to do. I had to find his parents and I had to figure out what happened, what happened. And I remember on Monday, I mean, it was, it, it was, it put me in a spin. I wasn't eating. I, I was completely in shock. And I called, um, I Googled cause it was back then Google was coming about and, and, uh, I Googled, I knew his parents were in a small town in Indiana and I started working my way toward, uh, finding them. And there was a small town called Bluffington that had about three apples with the last name. And I decided to start there. And the first phone call I rang was a woman answered the phone. And I said, well, I'm looking for Rob Apple's parents. And I'm Kimberly. He was with the Garner Police Department and he went into the FBI. And she goes, well, you're talking to his mother. And I said, well, this is Kimberly. And she goes, I know who you are. And I, I, we talked for a long time and, um, she says, I think this was like March. Um, and she goes, look, all of us are getting together on his death date, May 7th and you should come. And I was like, what? And before I knew it, I was on a plane going to see his parents and met his sisters and, and, um, it was an extraordinary four days and, it was amazing. You know, we were sitting around watching videos of Rob as a child and I, I got some answers and, um, we had some time, Rob's mom and I had some time before any, everybody came home and she goes, there's a couple of things I need to show you. So you're not shocked. And she walks me into her bedroom and there's a picture of Rob and I on her chest, you know, her chest of drawers. And I'm like, Wow. He's like, yeah. And there's one other thing. And she opened the garage door and, and there was his Del Sol that we dated in. And um, I asked for a few minutes and uh, I, it w- I, I thought that this was, it was just really weird. It was just, I, you know, a, a lot of people that I, r- I rarely tell this story to because it's, it's really um, tough. But after, I remember his mom sitting in their kitchen and uh, outside of Fort Wayne, and and she said, you should write about this one day. And I was like, I don't know if I can. And here I am 20 years later, and I finally have the heart and the courage and the vulnerability um, to put pen to paper and and tell the story of. It sounds, I I believe that uh, you're about to tell a story about Apple that has more more coincidences than than what you can imagine hmm. and um and what's interesting as i'm thinking about this there's there's a coincidence that's sitting actually at your table right now my absolute favorite car is the oh. honda del sol no way and i have actually been scouring the United States and Japan for a vintage Del Sol with low mileage. You commented earlier about wanting to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And I have to say one of the, I get asked that question a lot. Hey Garth, you know, you're an author. I have this story that's deep in my soul that I need to tell. What do I do? Mm-hmm. And I always respond with the same question and usually their face gets ashen when I ask the question <laughs> and, and I have no fear. You will not, you will not respond in the same way because I know where you are. We'll see. But the question that I always ask is how many words have you written today? Oh, what a great question. 
that is a daily discipline. It's almost like yoga um, or baseball or running. It's, it is being, and I, I guess a storyteller slash writer, um, it is a daily practice. And yes, there have been days that no words have been written, but I try to sit down for between 10 and two. Wi-Fi goes off nothing. I, I'm sitting either at my desk or in a place that I, that I write. And I sometimes write um, for 20 minutes and then I, it's over. And so I, it just depends. I can't, you can't force creativity, but the discipline of writing is an everyday thing. And I, I remember writing when I was 12 journaling and things like that. So it's always been a part of me. So I think the, the, the biggest point that you were making is that writers write. And that's the differentiator. And it's not, it, it's not being a published author. It's the fact that you take up that daily practice and you exercise your mind and your words every single day. And so you have, you have taken that step of actually creating a daily practice writing and now you have this collection of words that is being put into a bound book format mm -hmm. so the the hope is not only are you a writer but you actually become a published author <laughs> that and, is that's the goal <laughs> and so your book is bridging the gap and, and i'm always interested in in hearing from other people who write and other people who are authors because I personally had no idea what that meant mm. when I started and you've actually had time and you have effort and you have energy that you're putting into the story that you're compiling so when it's finished and I read it or somebody else reads it what do you hope we take away from that I hope that you feel like you are on the journey with me and meeting some of these people that radically changed my life, my life lessons. Um, and in ultimately in the end, I hope it opens the curtain to face that we're all, all are going to die. And at the end, I want to be sure and empower people that they have lived. And so there's this saying that, that it's a baseball saying that, you know, when I slide into home plate, I'm going to look over my shoulder and be like, man, that was a great ride. And I think that I want that for everyone. And if the lessons that I learned throughout my years, talking to individuals who are sick or dying, they have this unique um, veil that, that, or I guess those who don't have this illness or don't have this impending death sentence. I mean, we have the veil. It's lifted for those individuals because everything starts mattering. It, I mean, the little things, um, watching Emma get on the bus, watching her drive to high school, those little small things, washing your hands at the sink, the, the small things that we do that we dismiss every day. And I have got a front re right. I mean, a front row seat to individuals that that wanted to live more, and and told me about big regrets, and told me and encouraged me like, what are you waiting for? Why take you know solve it? Forgive people. I mean, don't if you don't forgive, then only you are going to be the one harboring that no one else does that and these little things that are just common sense but when you have someone at the end of their life and their experience telling you this suddenly it's really real and that's what I hope I hope bridging the gap and the reason I named it that because I'm not a clinical person I don't want to be a clinical person even though I thought about PA school and medical school and I just didn't want that to change my perspective in the death and dying world, because I do feel physicians and people they working around death and dying that they can get on this 
like Jessica Zeter says, conveyor belt of checkboxes. And and they treat, 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 and which is fine in an acute setting. But when someone's seriously ill, um, it really needs to be inclusive with the individual who is on that timeline. And I don't, I didn't want medical school or PA school um, to change my opinion. I wanted to be a community member, and I think that hopefully because I've spent 17 years, you know, and I say hospice nurses and hospice physicians raise me, that I can speak that talk, but it's, I can interpret, you know, from, to the community. You know, as, as somebody who has really had to face his own mortality and a side note for your audience, I grew up the son of a mortician. Oh, no way. Yes. So, and not only was my dad a mortician, my mom's dad. No way. And an uncle and a cousin. So I grew up around death and dying. And it was unfortunately, a, it, it was the family business. Oh, wow. And so I definitely was very in tune to that aspect hmm. of, of the death process. I'm not as a patient, I've had to kind of help guide my physicians and understand that we do have to have very frank conversations, but I'm still a person. Mm -hmm. And so understand that it, when you look me in the eye and say, Mr. Callahan, you're going to die from this. I can accept that as a, as a mature individual, but there's also part of me that's just screaming inside. And so which, which patient do you treat? Do you treat the, you, do you treat me in a very clinical way or do you treat me as a person? And I really would like to think that the best is, is a little bit of both. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that that is, um, I, I just feel like in, in the end of life industry, the first question it should never be about the diagnosis. It should be what matters most to you from this moment forward. And we're going to, we're going to put your care around that. And, and, and it might have nothing to do with living an extra month or, I mean, it might have something to do with making sure the napkin notes are there for your child. Um, you know, what are we living for? And, and, and that's where, I, I feel sometimes in the acute settings and even in, in hospice and palliative care, not so much palliative, but even in the hospice, it's a business, you know? And and right now we're in this this really crazy time of of health care is not a human right. And I, I I'm I'm concerned. Um because I want people to be afforded the human right to be cared for the way they want to be cared for. You know, when I was, when I was first diagnosed with metastatic kidney cancer and to put things in perspective, I had already heard the words, Mr. Callahan, you have cancer twice before I had metastatic kidney cancer. So there was a part of me that was very kind of nonchalant and used to it and saying, Hey, what do we do now? How do we attack this? After that, second surgery after that third diagnosis and when we got the pathology back that's when that's when things really shifted for me and my doctors said look you know this is metastatic kidney cancer the the lifespan the median lifespan is is 12 months hmm. 16 with successful treatment and i thought to myself wait what 16 is successful and as soon as I wrapped my brain around that, I did something that mattered. Hmm. It wasn't, hey, how do I, what's my job title or what's, mm -hmm. you know, how big is my house or what car do I drive? It was, I needed to turn back to my family. Not that I think that I turned away from them, but I really had to turn back and, and focus. And that's when I wrote out all of those 826 napkin notes for Emma and it took me about 90 100 days to do man and, and and the thought was okay if I died today 
Will she have a note for her lunch every day, every lunch day between then and high school graduation? And I think when, when you address patients like that and you understand, and you really learn to understand what is important to them, you can treat them much in a much fairer way. And sometimes it's, it's a medical treatment that needs to be done. Well, and, and just think of, you know, that 16 months, it was ringing true to you. And here you are starting Emma's senior year. And, and so it, I, life's a mystery, man. And, and I, I just can't figure it out why, why you're sitting in front of me with this disease, looking healthy and looking happy. And, and, you know, I, I have to say, I do, I do look marvelous. <laughs> you do. <laughs> You do. I love the hair, the goatee. I mean, um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, I, I just got a, a email this morning um, that a friend of mine passed away from cancer and she battled for five years. And so it's, it's just, you know, it's not about what's going to get us. It's about, you know, we're living longer and technology and, and it's really good, but it's about really quality. What can we live with? And, and that's where I want the open conversation to be, not patient-centered, but patient-included, patient inclusion, you know, allow the patient and family to be a part of the conversation instead of putting the patient in the center and all these doctors, nurses, and everybody around them, let them be part of that conversation. You know, my, my current oncologist is very collaborative. Nice. Almost to the point where I almost feel sometimes like the decisions rest solely on me. Hmm. Which is okay. I, I'm a very well-educated patient. I'm a good patient advocate. But the conversation, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed actually at this point where I only have to see him every four months. Nice. And a couple of years ago, I was in his office every eight weeks. I was in, in MRIs every eight weeks. I was in CT scans every eight weeks. I felt like I should get my own parking space. <laughs> And, uh, or at least, you know, give me a punch card so I could get a free burrito. Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so now when we wrap up our conversation, he says things like, Hey Garth, you know, there, I don't have any other patients that have been on this treatment as long as you, hmm. do you feel like you could go another four months taking this daily chemo? And the answer is mine. Hmm. It's, it's yes or no. And the no's really scary, but it's collaboration between the medical staff and, and the patient and the family. My wife is there every single appointment. Oh, wow. So it's a very big collaboration between all of the parties. And I, I truly believe that I could say no to him and say, no, I'm not going to keep taking the daily chemo. I'm going to take a risk. And I feel like he would fully support that. Hmm. He, he might not like it, and I know that he doesn't feel comfortable with it. He's expressed that. And guess what? I don't feel comfortable either. Mm. But there's, there's, no, there's no dictation. There's no the doctor tells the patient. And I feel really in control of my own destiny. And I think that's so important. Oh, wow. That's really, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm really glad to hear that. And, and and maybe and maybe things are evolving because you know baby boomers they're talking about death all the time and and you know our generation um we're 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 going to be pretty much if you think baby boomers are bad just wait to the generations after them um and I, and i think that I, you know, I think it comes back to recognizing that we all are going to die. I could die before you, Garth, um, and you have a serious illness. And it, but what do I do with that? And I feel like sometimes when people are given that diagnosis, how scary it is, that veil is is lifted, and suddenly you start seeing what's important. And dadgummit, I wish you just didn't have the disease. I just, you know, I, I, I uh, as somebody who's sitting across the table from you, I can greatly appreciate that and i'm so it's 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 actually um it, it's a little scary mm -hmm. to think about somebody else wishing so hard for me or praying so hard for me or whatever so hard for me i 
you know, there was, there was a point in time when I actually thought, okay, I have to accept this path because God's put it in front of me. And if I don't accept it, then I'm being sacrilegious hmm. or I'm being dis- disrespectful to God. Mm. And that, that thought and, and that um, belief kind of I held with me for probably two years. And I was so wrong. Mm. Um, I, I actually believe in my heart. Oh, I would give anything to, to be healthy again. I would give up everything. I would give up the book. I would give up the movie. Uh, the amount of pain that I and, and suffering that I've had to put my family through. Mm. Not, not to mention the physical and, and emotional and, and mental stress that I put myself through. I would absolutely veer from this path. And yes, if it's, if, if that is considered disrespectful to God, Mm-mm. great. But my belief today is, okay, God's put me on this path. I don't have to like it. Mm. However, I do have to walk it with joy. And if I walk this path with joy, if I live, if I pay attention to the important things in my life, then that's what matters. And, and frankly, that, that's, that's really, it's the way that I can wake up every morning knowing that I have two types of cancer in my body and, and still be happy and still be a happy person. Hmm. That's, that's, that's everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't wake up sour. I don't wake up bitter. There are plenty of things in my life that I'm bitter about. Hey, we're out of SpaghettiOs <laughs> or whatever. Right. <laughs> but I, I don't have to be bitter about my life or my health or my focus. And I, I greatly appreciate you bringing these stories to light mm-hmm. because you know who... You, People don't lay down on their deathbed and think, oh, if only I'd made more money. Right. Or, oh, if only I had a bigger house. Or only, it may, you know, maybe if I was taller, the hearse would have to be bigger. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, even this past year, um, being not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring with, you know, cashing in the retirement and things like that. I, I, f- I feel uncomfortable. And, and that is a reminder to me. And I don't know why I know this, but every time I feel uncomfortable, I hear this little voice, you're growing, you're growing, trust it. It's okay. I, I, I joke about this a lot and I probably shouldn't be joking because it's, 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 <laughs> I do have a somewhat cavalier attitude towards my illness. I'm used to it at this point. It's been five and a half years. And I, and I joke a little bit about my faith and my relationship with, with God. And one of the things that I joke about is how I actually don't have a high comfort level in talking about my faith and my relationship with God in public. Hmm. I really think that that's a private thing. And every time that I admit to myself that I don't have a high comfort level, somebody, God, I don't know, kind of shoves me and says, hey, guess what? You have an opportunity to talk about your faith in public. And I think, oh, great. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I, I understand where you, know, you have this trepidation and you have this maybe a little bit of doubt in your heart about podcasting and everything else screams this is the right path Mm. right so if you're on the right path in that this is the first season Mm -hmm. end right so we're at the end and sometimes endings mean new beginnings and you actually have a new beginning yes right so you have the second season that you're already working on so if I were, you know, somebody who wanted to be on your podcast, lucky me, I've been on twice now. <laughs> how, how lucky do, me. Oh, I, I'm the one who's lucky. How do you, how do you, how do you pick guests? Um, and, and, and 
once you pick them, like who who are the guests? Can you talk about next season yet? Well, um, you know that we've still got a, a huge uh, couple of months with first season that are, are full of surprises, and um, yeah, second season is uh, looking pretty pretty interesting. Um, we have we have Michael Fronte, um, a singer who uh, him and his wife have started a a nonprofit that is. Uh, you know, do it for the love, um, terminally ill patients and children and veterans. They, if they have a favorite musician star that they want to go and meet, they get, uh, to go and meet them and it's all on them and their nonprofit and it's about spreading love. And so I'm really excited about bringing him on and his wife, Sarah, who is an ER nurse background. And, um, then, uh, a couple just came in my life recently and it's uh, their book just came out in May and it's called Driving Miss Norma and Tim and Rainey uh, they have just been very inspiring to me and their Tim's mom said no to chemotherapy and and went on this adventure at, at 90 years old um, in an RV experienced life for the first time. And I just finished the book and, and they're going on another adventure right now. And I mean, these are, these are people, but again, I, I, I look for people who have a unique story. Um, but all stories are unique. So it's, it's really wide open. Um, I've had some people call me and be like, Hey, I really want to be on your podcast. And we talk and I'm like, heck yeah, because I don't live by corporate American standards anymore. This is my game that I play and I can change the rules at any time. And if someone is passionate about coming onto my podcast, then I think that's all you have to be and share a personal story. Um, You don't have to be well-known like Michael and Sarah Fronte. Um, You can be my next door neighbor or you can be a caregiver in New Mexico. You know, I, I think that's the point is that we're all, we all relate to the subject and we all have a story, and I want to tell that story. The, the thing is, um, you know, the whole podcast thing came out of me wanting to write this book and get some followers that when the book is published that I would have some readers, you know, other than family members. And it, it sort of have this podcast has taken a life of its own. And, you know, I get daily emails from people, and um, it kind of, we're, I'm pretty consistent because um, I read this book. I can't remember the author and I, I'm sorry, I can't plug him right now, but he he said, learn how to podcast. And so I, I listened to his book like the last six months of working full time. And it says, hey, if you are going to say your podcast comes out every Thursday, the one mistake podcasters make is they don't do it. And so I recorded pretty much five months before, maybe even six months before it ever aired because he was just tattooed on my mind like okay because I mean Thursday comes around all the time but this is the last po- podcast of season one it will air on Thanksgiving um, and you know happy Thanksgiving everybody um, eating turkey and talking and listening to my death and dying story but that's the point and we'll go dark in December and then the first Thursday in January we'll come back with season two now I signed up for two seasons um, in my mind um, and I don't know what happens after this. Do I keep going? Um, It's so much fun to talk to people and get to know people. It's almost like its own grassroots movement because it's like one person at a time and they, they share their podcast with people and it's suddenly I get a little bit more followers and, and that's, what's really cool about it. Um, So yeah, anybody can be on the podcast um, email me at Kimberly at deathbydesign.com or go to deathbydesign.com and say, hey, I have a story and um, and we'll tell it. You know, I, I think this is, it, it's so fundamental to living. And un- unfortunately, most of us don't want to think that far ahead. We don't think about the fact that um, there's going to be an end. And can we control that? And can we manage it on our own in, in our own terms? Hearing, you know, I, I, I am a huge podcast listener, as you are. I walk my dog 
and I, I don't play Pokemon Go. Uh, well, not anymore, anyway. That's um, good to know. You not I, listen to Star Wars on your... I, I generally don't listen to Star Wars as much as I'd love to. I, I do listen to podcasts. Hmm. And I, I find myself taking longer walks hmm. with my dog because I'm so engrossed in what I'm listening to that I don't want to walk away. I don't want to stop listening. And I have been known to kind of like overheat Oh, wow. At, at, in, in, you know, so I'm, I'm back from the park. I don't want to go inside because going inside means I have to go back to work. And I'm sitting on my front porch and it's 95 degrees and I just need five more minutes to finish this podcast. <laughs> right. And I really hope that your listeners have that same passion because the subject matter is so important. Hmm. And, and you bring to it um, uh, not only dignity, but humor. Oh, thanks. And, and, and it's really important. I mean, I, again, I know that I'm very nonchalant and somewhat, um, I don't know, sarcastic about my own health. Yes. And I, and I've done this before, you know, imagine this conversation in my kitchen. Hey Garth, can you take out the trash? And I put my hand on my back where my remaining kidney is. And I'm like, Oh my cancer. I, I, I can't. <laughs> And that type of irreverence. <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> is, is, hey, I've, I've only mowed my lawn three times in the last four years. Um, I, there, there's this irreverence or this, I don't know, sardonic, um, I don't, is that even the right word? It, it's this attitude hmm. that, hey, you know what? I recognize where I am. And I've accepted it and I'm working on it my own terms. And I, I really believe that your podcast and the stories that you are collecting are going to help people all around the world come to that same realization because everybody has somebody in their life that's currently dying. Yeah. I mean... Well, I, you know, I appreciate that. I, I, um, I, I really am changed by some of these stories. And I, I think if I feel changed by some of these stories that I'm the guests that come on, I, after 17 years around this stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm just all and all about it because I, I just can't believe every person that contacts me or I contact them. I mean, they're a little, some people are a little shocked. They're like, Oh, you're, you want me to be? I was like, yes. Um, and, and I guess they, they follow the podcast, but others are like, I don't even know what you're doing. Tell me more about what you're doing. And it's like an opportunity for them to be exposed to what I'm doing, but more so for me to be exposed for what they're doing and, and learn. And I don't think any one person has the answer. And I think it's going to take all of us, just like BJ Miller said in our podcast a few months ago, he says, you know, this is a drumbeat that we're all playing a role in. And we're part of that drumbeat altogether. You as a patient, you as an author, me as a, as a hospice employee or a podcaster about death and dying. I mean, we all have a certain role here. And it's, I feel responsible to, to put it out there. And, um, and, you know, this, it hasn't been all glory, you know, there's, there's been a lot of chatter, like death by design. What is that? Medical aid and dying? God only takes life. And I just sort of kind of chuckle because I, I, I say in my head, ha ha ha, I gotcha. You're talking about death. And, and, and I feel like I've done what I've come to do. Even if you disagree with some of the guests or disagree with, um, some of my opinions where, where I really try not to, you know, over embellish and, and just be about me, but it, it's about talking about death. And, and, and I applaud people when they say, well, God only takes life. I'm like, absolutely. If that's your viewpoint, then hooray for you. Good that you recognize that. But that's not everybody's viewpoint. And, um, and it's about coming to the crossroads and respecting where individually we are and not pushing to death that I think you, Garth, deserve or want or should have. It's about you and your medical 
working with your medical team, your family, your daughter, um, to come up to what's best for you. And my job, I feel, is to be there supporting you doing that and not projecting something on you that just because I think this way. So that's sort of what I love about the podcast is it goes from talking about medical aid and dying to talking, uh, you know, another guest coming up in pot, uh, season two is Jonathan, the husband of Nina Riggs, bestseller, The Bright Hour. And and here's this husband, you know, raising two boys. And um, it's just it's just an honor to be in their presence and be able to have a, a, a relationship with them. And, and some have turned into friendships like ours. It's just, I, I feel like it's, I am very lucky. So, you know, I have, I, I, I just, I have to interrupt. And when you say things like, Oh, it's turned into friendships like ours. I, there's a part of me inside that I'm still thinking, this is just so weird. <laughs> right? So, so you know, a while ago you gave up, a really long career in hospice and somehow the universe connected us. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, it blows my mind because I don't get it. (laughs) I don't get it either. (laughs) I, 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 I am so, this is so far above my consciousness level. I know. Isn't it awesome? It's so weird (laughs) because I mean, to, and, and I'll be, I'll be, brutally honest i don't remember our initial like interaction i don't know if i do either i think it's an email yeah like hey garth would you do this and i i have a really hard time saying no like i i i don't feel like it's i i I, it's my mission to say yes Hmm. right If, if i can talk about my my own health crisis I hate the word journey. I know a lot of people love it, you know, your, your journey or whatever. It's like, oh, you know, this isn't, we're not on a walkabout. This isn't all that right. fun. Um, so, it, but if I can talk about my health crisis and how my family has really adjusted to this, maybe I can help somebody else. So mm-hmm. when some random stranger, and it just happened again this week, reaches out to me and says, hey, you know, will you be on a podcast? My inclination is always yes. And then I have to think, oh, what's it about? Right. And I, I remember, I do remember very distinctly your title of the podcast. And I thought, oh, this is intriguing hmm. to me. And, and again, it's because I'm a son of a funeral director. Right. Who didn't go into the business, who stepped away from the family business. And uh, I think the only salvation is my cousin, Brendan, who's a few years older than I am and hopefully one of his children will go into the business and carry on the, the family <laughs> tradition. I, uh, but I just, I, I was so intrigued hmm. because for the first time, I actually kind of had it in my face like, hey, you know, by the way, you're mortal hmm. and let's try to figure this out. Let's try to, let's try to understand what that really means to you. So I, I appreciate I, I really am thankful for your friendship oh. and your kindness because it came at a time where I really needed it. Oh, wow. Thanks, Garth. I mean, I think we needed each other. I mean, I really do. And I, I, I feel like I'm the lucky one. And, and that's, that's really cool. I, I, and I, I can't really explain it. I, well, again, I think some of this is just too big to, to really comprehend. Um, I go back to, to you talking about reading the note that I had written that mm. one day. I, it gives me pause, right? So tomorrow morning when I wake up and I need to write Emma's note and I, I, I'm, I might think to myself, oh crap, who else is going to read this? <laughs> right. right. How are they going to, how, how is it going to be received? Am I, am I going to be, am I going to help somebody quit their job? Because that's not my intent. I, <laughs> I just wanted to say, hey, Emma, good luck on your test. <laughs> that's hilarious. But look, you know, I think, I think we all need something um, to, to push us to take a leap of faith. And I, I'm my worst critic. Um, Aren't we all? Yes. I mean, I, I, I've sort of started to learn that 
hey, man, you, you, you don't have to get up today. It's Monday. You don't have to get up. But it's people like you and people like my other guest and people like community members and people commenting and liking and sharing. Um, it's, I do have to get up. I have a responsibility to your story, to my story, to Apple's story. And, and I really think that when it comes down to it, I feel privileged that I might have um, an impact on Apple's legacy. And, and it all started with that. And so that's, that's what I'm proud of, is that, um, that I might have an impact, that someone might know this man that was so awesome. Um, and he, he died. But yet we, you can still meet him through me, through his mother, and through our story. And that's, that to me is something that I can't explain. So I, I need to share with your listeners because obviously they can't see us. We're not recording video for this. <laughs> right. Um, and it, it, we again, we are in a public library, so anybody can really see what we're doing. <laughs> this is not fresh air, unfortunately. <laughs> no. um, I, you know what? We need to get BJ Lederman to do your theme song, right? Because doesn't he do all of the theme songs for all of the great NPR shows? That's a great yeah. idea. Um, uh, write that down. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> I'm writing it down right now. So, but I, I've been sitting here this whole time, regardless of how sad the story is that you're telling me. And I've had this really big smile on my face. Mm -hmm. And there are two reasons. One is that I, I get the opportunity to finally meet you in person. But the other and the bigger reason is that I'm, I'm hearing these fantastic stories and there's something about a well-intentioned story mm -hmm. that just, it warms my heart and it, it makes me smile no matter how sad the story is. And, and maybe you've noticed there've been a couple of times where I've had to look away and I'm still smiling and I'm trying not to choke up and my, my <laughs> eyes are getting a little blurry and is somebody cutting onions in the darn library? <laughs> right. And it's, it's the, va this is, that's the value of sharing these stories. It's the value of kind of exposing yourself and sharing pain and joy so that somebody else might be able to take a glimmer of something that you've shared and apply it to their, their own lives. That's so, what I hope. Uh, well, I think, I think it's beyond hope at this point. Mm. It may not be, it may not be quantifiable, but it's out there. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. It's, it's, it's truly my pleasure. And so, um, one, you know, uh, Kimberly was so kind. She gave me show notes and questions and, um, <laughs> so that I didn't, I, I, it, I may be a fool, but I don't give the appearance of being a fool. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that I love is the very last question mm. that you wrote down for me. And, and I don't even remember it. Well, I'm going to cover it up so okay. you can't see it. <laughs> And the, the reason why I love it so much is that I am a huge fan of the show, The West Wing. Hmm. And regardless of your political affiliation, if you get down to the, the heart of that story, it was well-intentioned government officials doing the best they saw fit for the country, for everybody. And yes, it was a very politically oriented show. However, if you, if you looked in their hearts and saw what you should have seen, then you would understand that they, they really had the country's best interest at heart. But what the reason why I've, I've rambled on about this show that hasn't been on the air for probably 10 years now. It's a great show. Is that President Bartlett had this infamous way of saying, hey, you know what? I'd like to, I'd like to move on to the next thing. I want to... I, I'm I'm finished with with what you've just talked to me about, and I need to know more about something else. And he would just the way he would present that is so simply. He would just say, "What's next?" I think my dream is um, to Airbnb my house out in Wilmington, North Carolina, and 
uh, take a note from Miss Norma, get an RV with my German Shepherd and go town to town and, and meet people and give them this book. Um, hopefully it will be worth being bought so I can at least afford gas, but I won't, I'm, I'm interested in the next adventure and I just want to keep meeting people and uh, opening up my life. So uh, it's who, who knows, who knows? And that's, that's exciting to me. And I think that's living. That's living when you're open to just about anything. That's about as strong a statement as somebody can make. <laughs> well, I have to say thank you for turning the tables and, um, Thank you for taking the time out of your life to interview me. Um, I get a lot of questions throughout the years about how did you go from A to B and why are you talking about death and dying in, in a way that I've never heard someone talk about it before. But you know what? Um, when you break down life, it is about connection and it's about the people in front of you. And like we said earlier, we can both drive away and our life is over. And so what I tried to, to really concentrate on is making what I'm doing the most important thing in my life. And this was a really important thing in my life, doing this season finale with you. And I can't believe you said yes. I was so thrilled um, because you you changed my life by a napkin note and I'm sitting here in front of you um, because of that napkin note. And yes, it was maybe a part of it, but gosh, the powerful suggestion of words and that simple thing you were doing for your daughter and how it impacted even me. So I'm just, I feel lucky and I feel really privileged to call you a friend. Well, I, I really appreciate the invitation, and uh, I'll see you at the end of season two, even if it's for a cameo. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. <laughs>